this evening is July 9th, 2008. Our message is called, Did You See That? Did You See That? In 2 Samuel 15, we're going to start. You got a title above your uh, chapter? What's it say? Absalom's Conspiracy. Absalom means father of peace. I want to draw your attention down to uh, the sixth verse. Absalom behaved in this way towards all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. If you remember your Bible stories, Absalom was a good-looking young man, right? Not hard for you to visualize in this setting, I hope. <laughs> he had long hair, you know, like Adam's. No, I'm kidding. Long, curly hair. And this was a good-looking kid. And Absalom had began to purpose in his heart that he should cause himself to elevate. He got his own horse. He got his own chariot. And he hung outside the city gate so that people that were coming to seek justice of the righteous king, David, would first be met by Absalom. And Absalom would tell them whatever they wanted to hear so that he might gain their favor. And in this way, he stole the hearts of Israel. What I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to share with you a shadow and type, something you may not have heard before, and it is going to have to do with the nation of Israel. In this setting, you can think of Israel and Absalom in one accord. Not Israel, the whole nation, but Israel at the time of Christ, having in it a group of people that had worked out for themselves their own system of righteousness, a kind of religious pride, if you will, symbolized by Absalom's hair, Absalom's beauty, vanity of look-at-myself accomplishments. Skip on down to 2 Samuel 15, the 12th verse. Tell me when you're there. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. To begin to paint this picture for you, because that's what shadows and types are, they are a picture in history that occurs before an actual event that can lend some insight to it. You can question Ahithophel's motives, if you like. Maybe it's because he's the great-grandfather of Bathsheba that he defects from David. Maybe he still has a little burr under his saddle for the way Bathsheba was treated or Uriah was killed. But what we do know is we know that Ahithophel was one of David's trusted counselors. In fact, the word goes on to say that Ahithophel's word, his advice, was considered like that of an angel of God. Do you know any other righteous kings that had one of their trusted counselors who defected and went and became part of a conspiracy? Yeah, who was that, Nick? A man named Judas was a trusted counselor of Jesus, a friend and a confidant. The first chapter of Acts says he shared in the apostolic ministry and was one of our number. How did it end for Judas? He hung himself. That's strange. You know how Ahithophel dies? The 17th chapter of this book says he hung himself. When I saw this, I began to go, hmm, there's some interesting parallels here. We have a righteous king who had a defector who went over and joined a conspiracy that was based on religious pride and vanity. Skip on down with me to the 13th verse. A messenger came and told David, The hearts 
of the men of Israel are with Absalom. Can you imagine how that must have broke this righteous king's heart? He has been king over Israel. He's presented himself as a shepherd who has risen to the throne. And now Israel is rejecting him for a younger, better looking model. The people's choice. And even some of his own counselors, one in particular, has defected to give credence to the idea of this conspiracy. Flip on down to the 19th verse. What happens at this time is Absalom begins to gather around him people like Ahithophel. He gathers around him the armies of Israel and all of Israel turns on King David. And King David has to depart from Jerusalem and go and hide. And something happens. He begins to gather people to him. Look at the 19th verse. The king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why should you come along with us? Go back, this king is King David. Go back and stay with Absalom. You are a foreigner, an exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday, and today shall I make you a wanderer with us when I do not know where I'm going? Go back and take your countrymen. May kindness and faithfulness be with you. But Ittai replied to the king, As surely as Yahweh lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will be your servant. It's interesting that this departure from Jerusalem, where the righteous king leaves Jerusalem behind is going to be exiled for a time period. He finds righteous foreigners who are grafted not only into his army, but this man makes it figuratively into the family of this king for all times. As I began seeing these stories, it started to shake my thinking for a moment. And it began drawing parallels in my mind to the first century. But I've got to tell you the next few verses are what does it. Look for me to the 30th verse, and then I'll begin to explain. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. And his head was covered, and he was barefoot. I began thinking about a righteous king who approached Jerusalem. And as I began thinking about this righteous king descending the Mount of Olives and looking at Jerusalem, he begins to weep. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you had known what would bring you peace. Do you all recognize that righteous king? That's Yeshua. And he's exiled from Jerusalem. And during his exile, he gathers to him people, many of whom are foreigners. But because of their loyalty, they will stick with him whether in life or death. They become part of his family. Who is that, saints? That's you. This began shaking me in my soul. Hold this here. Hold your finger here and turn with me to Matthew 23. I want to read you something. Unless you think that I'm taking an anti-Semitic trend, I promise you're going to find out that our very salvation depends upon the nation of Israel tonight. You're going to find out that so it goes with the nation of Israel, so it goes with you personally. In fact, you may even find new motivation to pray for Israel in a way that you have never prayed before. Tell me when you're in Matthew 23. I'm going to pick up in a horrible, difficult verse. The 33rd verse. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers, some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. 
And so upon you will come all of the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is exiled from Jerusalem with the words, You will not see me again until there's a change of attitude. Until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'll quote this one for you and we'll revisit it later. But Revelation 1.7 says, At His coming He will come on the clouds of heaven and every eye will see Him. I want you to think for a minute, especially those with very good deductive reasoning. A couple of you with excellent analytical skills. If every eye is going to see Him, and yet Jerusalem cannot see Him until they are ready to say, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. What does that tell you? Something must happen. Every eye is going to see Him, but He cannot be seen by Jerusalem until they say, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Friends, we better be looking for some changes in Jerusalem, huh? Because this means, in fact, when you think of Peter's speech in Acts, he says he must reign in heaven till he's put all enemies underfoot. And he begins talking to Israel about receiving him that times of refreshing would come. I began to think about this and I knew that there had to be a revival in Israel. But the king of kings will not come back until Jerusalem itself is ready to receive him. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 16. I want to cover with you some reasons that church throughout history has tried to ignore what Jerusalem thinks or cares about. Things that you may have fallen into unwittingly without realizing it. In 2 Samuel 16, look at the fifth verse. This is hard to bear, especially when you think about it in light of King Jesus. As King David approached Behrim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones. Though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left, as he cursed, Shimei said, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel! The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. Does that remind you of a little event that happened in the Garden of Gethsemane? A man named Malchus got his ear cut off by a guy named Peter? I want to admit to you an idea here as we follow this line of reasoning. David, a righteous king, 
is basically exiled from Jerusalem because the people would rather a choice that appeals to their vanity. As David is leaving, many members of his own race begin hurling curses upon him. In fact, they spit on him and throw stones at him. We're going to read. Do you think that Abishai is justified then in wanting to go cut off his head? It would feel like that, wouldn't it? I want you to see what David's response is. But the king said, What do you and I have in common, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the if he is cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all of his officials, My son, who is of my own flesh, is trying to take my life, how much more then this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me with good for the cursing I am receiving today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. Righteous King David is on his way out of Jerusalem, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Shimei first, are throwing dirt at him and cursing him. Do you want to stick up for him? Do you want to avenge him? Listen to what David said. David said, what if he's cursing me because it was the Lord's will that he do so? Do you know that for 2,000 years, the Jewish rejection of Jesus has been an excuse for the Gentile nations of the world to commit atrocities against that nation and feel justified? All you need to do is open a history book. And you find out that in every Gentile Christian nation in the world, the Jewish population has been herded into ghettos and sections of the city and their rights taken and the people abused. And the excuse our forefathers used was these people have a blood guilt and Jesus said it. Do you remember at the end of Matthew? He said, let his blood be on head and the heads of our children. Do you remember that? They cut it out of the movie Passion of the Christ. They cut it out. It says it in Aramaic. It did not appear in the writing. Do you know why? Because the makers were worried that because of the ignorance in the church, this would be a fuel for anti-Semitism. They were worried. They said, well, why would they be worried? So I looked into it. Because throughout medieval Europe, every time there was a Passion play, It resulted in the burning of Jewish villages, the killing of pregnant Jewish women, and the public crucifixions of their rabbis. Now, I want to wash my hands of that. I I tell you this, by the way, this book, Our Hands Are Stained With Their Blood, is one of the most uncomfortable reads you'll ever have in your life. I wouldn't have read it except David Wilkerson said it was the best book he ever read, and I thought, you know, he's rarely wrong. It is an uncomfortable thing. Have we not considered that the Jewish rejection of Jesus has meant life for us and that not all of Israel rejected Him? Every person that you read about in the New Testament for the first 20 years is Jewish. But let us continue with the shadow on time. 2 Samuel 18. Actually, we should finish that last little part. Uh, in 2 Samuel 16, 
picking up an 11. David said to Abishai and all of his officials, My son, who is my own flesh and blood, is trying to take my life. How much more this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me with good for the cursing I am receiving today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted. Now you can go to the 18th chapter. Second verse. David sent the troops out, a third under the command of Joab, a third under Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zeruah, and a third under Ittai the Gittite. I, when I look at church history, want you to understand that I see a parallel here. We want to stand and say the true church never persecuted Israel. And yet, most of us would consider Martin Luther to be a true Christian. I mean, he gave us the doctrine of saved by grace and not by works. And yet he himself said that Jews should be herded into ghettos, the religious books burned, and they could be baptized by being thrown in the water with their hands tied behind their back. No matter where we look, saints, you cannot blame it just on the Catholic Church. Everywhere you look, you find that Gentiles have blood on their hands. And as I looked at this, I said, wow, David had an army divided into thirds. You're going to find out that Joab had a vengeful spirit. You're going to find out already that Abishai had a vengeful spirit. They felt as if Absalom and anybody who was in Jerusalem who did not receive Jesus deserved the punishment of God at their hands. One third, a very small remnant, did not feel that way. My sister reads Ellie Vassell frequently. Ellie Vassell is quoted a couple times in this book. It is amazing, it is amazing the extent to which the Israeli people have been persecuted by the nation in the name of a Jewish king who is their king. It began to break my heart. I want you to hear the heart of God expressed through David, a man after God's own heart, and then consider that another righteous king, Jesus, may have the same heart. Look at the fifth verse. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. Saints, we're going to look tonight at a lot of things. One of them, oh, you've all heard phones ring before. Pay attention. One of them is that the king of kings said every eye would see his return. But Jerusalem could not see his return until they were ready for him. This ought to set our hearts to praying for Jerusalem to be ready for him. The second thing that we're going to see is that King David was spit on. Rocks were thrown at him and people pursued him for his life. And yet his heart was be gentle with them. They are members of my own race. This so stirred me today, I'm telling you. We support a, a missionary right now in North America. We support one in South America. God will deal with me, be it ever so severely, if our next one is not in Israel. But I can assure you it will be the next dollar that we send towards foreign missions will go to Israel. I'm going to show you tonight in the book of Zechariah what we will be looking for. 
and it is earth-shaking, and you're going to want to go peel off of your cars those stupid bumper stickers that teach you to look for other things. Because Zacharias says it. He says exactly what we need to look for, and Jesus told us. In the sixth verse, a war has broken out between David's men and the men of Absalom. The army marched into the field to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There the army of Israel was defeated by David's men, and the casualties that day were great. 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest claimed more lives that day than the sword. As tragic as it is that Gentile nations have persecuted the Jewish people and put them to the sword, six million during World War II, untold numbers under Stalin, they're still finding mass graves. As tragic as that is, you know what's more tragic? The confusion that all of this has caused is sending Jews to hell by the millions. See, I love Israel, but I don't practice dual covenant theology. I'm not telling you that Israel is saved outside of Messiah. They're cut off if they're not in Messiah. But the people who claim Messiah as their king bear no resemblance to Jews and require Jews to not be Jewish to become Christians. We even call it conversion. Did you know Paul never changed religions? Never. They considered themselves Jews until they died. They were just followers of the Jewish Messiah. But today, to join a Christian church, a Jew must prove conversion. In middle evil times, they actually made them eat pork to prove it. How shameful, right? We're a Jew in here today that embraced Messiah, danced in the Spirit, prophesied, but refused to eat pork. Might you dare to call him legalistic? Might you tell him you're free from the law? Right? Show no respect. No respect for his culture. See, this is rampant. It's still going on all around us. Everywhere I went in Israel, I saw dates. And the dates were written as C-E, chronic error, common error or BCE, except one. In the Holocaust Museum, they had a plaque that said, in the year 1,933 of the Christian era, the world stood by while six million Jews were murdered. It doesn't matter whether or not you identify with people who persecuted them. We're going to read here in a minute, David atones for the whole land of Israel's bloodshed, even though he's not the one who shed the blood. We see that Daniel atoned for his people's sin even when he was innocent. There's something to be said for waking up to what has happened to Israel in their history and in the hope that we can embrace Messiah together. You're going to find out that your destiny is wrapped up in that. More Jews died from the confusion than died from the warfare. That means that when you see six million Jews and we talk about how sad that was, and it is extraordinarily sad. If you've never been to Yad Vashem, it is almost beyond human description. You know what's sadder? More than six million Jews have gone to hell because we've misrepresented their Messiah's aims towards them. Look at the 18th chapter in the 28th verse. Nope, nope. 
Got to get the ninth verse of this one. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule. And as the mule went under thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's head got caught in the tree. And he was left hanging in midair while the mule kept riding. I want you to think about something for a minute. No matter how justified anyone has ever thought they were in hurling insults, or maybe more subtle things than that, maybe just thinking of all jewelry as legalistic or all Pharisees as bad, maybe the real problem was not Absalom, but Absalom's head. So he didn't say his whole body was caught in the tree. He was caught by something. He was caught by his vanity. The Bible teaches you that when you return kind words to somebody who's angry, it's like heaping hot coals on their head. And this is a double reference. Of course, it makes them angry at first. But you know who it makes more angry? The one who has motivated them to sin because he's no longer winning. I want you to think about something for a moment. 2 Corinthians 4. You should go read this sometimes. The third verse says that if the gospel is veiled to a Jewish person, it is veiled because the God of this world has blinded them. When you meet somebody, don't think they're a rejecter of Jesus. Don't think for a moment that they're of a cursed race. Instead, think, wow, they have a temporary veil because the God of this world has blinded them. Now, let me ask you something. How did you get saved? Was it not when your eyes were opened? The same God who opened the eyes of someone who was not a member of His chosen race can certainly open the eyes of someone in His chosen race, yes? This is the whole topic of Romans 11. The entire topic. In fact, the warning that Paul gives the Gentile church at large is do not become arrogant and boast over them because God can cut you off too. Tell me, has that not happened? Two-thirds of David's army were vengeful towards members of their own race. Only one-third was not. I think the numbers are worse than that. I think the numbers are absolutely worse than that. When is the last time you really got on your face and prayed for Israel? When did you ever feel like you owed anything to Israel. I mean, it's just a little country in the Middle East without any oil, right? I mean, in fact, aren't they the cause of all of our foreign uh, diplomacy problems? You never had thoughts like that? Watch CNN. You'll get them all of the time. MSNBC, the Devil's News Network. You'll get it all of the time. The reason the devil hates Israel so much is every promise made to every human being on the planet is contingent upon his promise being fulfilled to the first people he made it to, which is Israel. And I want to remind you of something. Islam is based on something. Islam is based on the fact that a later revelation set aside the previous ones. It's based on the fact that God disinherited Christians and Jews in favor of Muslims. It was replacement theology, if you will. It's absurd to think that about Muslims and Christians and Jews, isn't it? In fact, Paul said if somebody brings you another revelation other than the one I've already given you, they're eternally damned. But they set that aside. They ignore that Scripture because they're sure that the prophet they receive, Muhammad, has taught them that they replace us. That's absurd, isn't it? 
How much more absurd is it then when people who are following a Jewish Messiah whom we've named Christ instead of Messiah and think that we form an Israel that replaces the Israel of the Bible? If you don't think that's true, go read for some time. Find out what dominion theology is. Find out what kingdom now theology is. Find out what most of the prosperity gospel world believes and you will find out that they have adopted all of the promises to Israel with none of the drawbacks and labeled themselves the true Israel of God. Think there's a problem with this. There's a huge problem. David was concerned for the members of his own race. When I say that, concerned for the members of his own race, is that not drawing your attention towards the words of Apostle Paul who said, I wish myself could be cursed, cut off, for the members of my own race? See, we owe a debt to Israel. And if we don't teach it from our pulpits, how will you learn it? It's much easier. I'd probably pass an offering plate right now if I tell you, you give me ten, God will give you a thousand. And wouldn't that be more fun to hear? The book that you hold in your hands is stained with Jewish blood. Every prophet, every apostle, Every member of the church itself for 20 years was Jewish. And the great debate of that day was, how do we let the Gentiles in on this? How ironic is it that it's been turned on its head? And that today, the whole church is Gentile, and the question is, what do we do with this crazy little tiny remnant of people who call themselves Messianic believers? Friends, there was no other kind than a Messianic believer in the beginning. Look at the 28th verse of chapter 18. Then Ahimaaz called out to the king, All is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, Praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up the men who lifted up their hands against my lord the king. You know what he's saying? He's excited because Joab has ignored the warning of the king and he went out and threw spears through Absalom. And then men fought to be the first to tell David. They actually had to have a foot race to see who could get to David first to tell him that they avenged him by killing his son. David's response is in the 33rd verse. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept As he wept, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Jesus was killed by the Jewish nation for the Jewish nation. He wished to die so that they would not have to die. The heart of God was to sacrifice His only Son first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. You know, for evil to prevail, all that has to happen is good men sit back and do nothing. Right now, and I'm not preaching politics, although that's a big part of my life too, there is a crazy Persian who is threatening annihilation of Israel. And all of the nations say, ah, sit back, take it on the chin, Israel. I mean, do what's good for the global body, we need the oil. How long will we sit back and do nothing? There was a promise that came to Abraham. He said, nations who bless you will be blessed. When's the last time you did anything that blessed a natural descendant of Abraham? But instead what we do is we call ourselves children of Abraham. And we are by faith. I'm not denying it. 
But there are actually descendants of Abraham this day that we could bless. You know, a million Jews, a million Jews, 1992-2000, immigrated from the Soviet Union to Israel. A million of them. Can you imagine if Houston had to build right now, because Houston's about the size, not geographically, but population-wise of Israel. If you had to build a million homes, how hard that would be? People are starving there. People with PhDs are sweeping floors there. Revelation 1.7 says every eye will see this. Every eye. And yet, we cannot see Jesus return. Those phones are killing us, guys. We cannot see Jesus return until Jerusalem is ready for Him. I want you to look at the 19th chapter here for a moment, starting in the 8th verse. Hear what, uh, what it said. Meanwhile, the Israelites had fled to their homes throughout the tribes of Israel. The people were all arguing with each other, saying, The king delivered us. King David delivered us from the hand of our enemies. He is the one who rescued us from the hand of the Philistines. Delivered? Rescued? Can anybody give me an English word for that? Delivered and rescued? Saved. The people of Israel are realizing that David was the one who saved them all along and they had been deceived. But now he has fled the country because of Absalom. And Absalom, whom we anointed to rule over us, has died in battle. So why do you say nothing about bringing him back? The people are beginning to clamor in Israel, where is our righteous King David who brings us salvation and deliverance? It's interesting. You know what David has to say to that? David, King David, sent messengers to Zadok and Abithar. There's a whole message here about a dual priesthood, but I don't have time for it. The priest asked the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his palace since what is being said throughout Israel has reached the king in his quarters? You are my brothers, my own flesh and blood, so why should you be the last to bring me back or to bring back the king? And say to Amasiah, Are you not my own flesh and blood? May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if from now on you are not the commander of my army in place of Joab. Two things are happening here. Israel is beginning to cry out for King David in shadow and tight King Jesus to come back. And you know what his response is? No. I will not come back until the elders themselves welcome me back send the priest to tell the elders about this. Friends, there has to be a witness in Israel so that a hunger for their Messiah can grow. And not a witness that says, you guys have to all stop being what you are and become like us. It has to be a witness that says Jesus Himself was Jewish. Your culture is designed by God. But Absalom's vanity, pride in your religious ways will get you nowhere. Faith in the Messiah is the only way to righteousness. And when this occurs, and the nation of Israel from the elders down experience revival, then what begins to happen is David makes his return. Look at verse 14. Oh, by the way, Joab, the ones who were vengeful towards Israel got replaced by Israelis. Isn't that funny when you think about uh, Romans 11? You boast because a branch was cut off that you might be grafted in. Do not boast because if they were cut off that you might be grafted in, how much easier could you be cut off that they would be grafted in again? Perhaps, perhaps a Gentile church 
that has been vengeful towards Israel will themselves be cut off and guilty of what they've accused Israel of doing. Verse 14, He won over the hearts of all the men of Judah as though they were one man. One man. When one man makes a decision, it's done. It's one man. King Jesus will win over all of Israel as one man. You ever wondered, but what happens to Shimei? I mean, what about people who curse and spit on Jesus today? Shimei was confused. Look at the 8th verse. When Shimei, son of Gera, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate before the king and said to him, May my Lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord left Jerusalem. Jesus, we didn't understand on our verse, first visit. Please don't hold it against us. May the king put out of his mind, for I, your servant, know that I have sinned. But today I have come here at first, as the first of the whole house of Joseph, to come down and meet my lord the king. Then Abishai, son of Zeruah, said, Shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this? The carnal church. He cursed the Lord's anointed. David replied, What do you and I have in common, you sons of Zerai? This day you have become my adversaries. Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Do I not know that today I am king over Israel? So the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. The king promised him on oath. In this story, we see a righteous king who's betrayed by a conspirator who goes and hangs himself, who leaves Jerusalem and will only return to Jerusalem when his own people, elders down, welcome him back. You thought, but what about the curse? I mean, Numbers 35-33 says that a land is polluted by bloodshed. Jesus said in Matthew 23 that all the blood would fall upon this people. In Matthew 27, they said, let His blood fall on us and the heads of our children. What about the bloodshed? It's interesting that in the 21st chapter of 2 Samuel, David atones for the bloodshed in the land. I began thinking about that and it reminded me of something. Turn to Zechariah. We're going to be in Zechariah for the rest of the evening which hopefully will not be too, too long. But saints, it's not like you hear this message every day. Mandy, you listen to messages in the car on the way down from Arkansas to here. Did any of them speak about Israel? No. Has anybody heard a message on the radio this week that spoke about Israel? If you have, raise your hand. It's okay. Wow, none. And yet it's the central character in all biblical prophecy. But the church is so interested in escaping with its tail between its legs, it does not even care what has to happen. To hell with the Jews, let's go to heaven. Right? To hell with the Jews, let's go to heaven. Jesus will not even return until His people whom He started with, He finishes with. The Great Commission, as expounded on in the book of Acts, be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We are the ends of the earth. Do you have the gospel? But who doesn't? Jerusalem. See, God's desire was always that this radiate outward. And Paul said, if the first batch of dough is holy, it's all holy. We'll shed some light on that in a second. What about blood guilt? In Zechariah 3, I don't have time to read it all. Let's start in verse 8. 
Listen, O High Priest Joshua. you got a footnote there that says it can be Yeshua. How interesting. Listen, O High Priest Jesus, and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. Maybe the branch of Jesse. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua, Jesus. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. With with the heart of one man, all of Israel is one man turned towards David. God promised to remove all of the guilt of Israel, the sin of the land, in a single day in Zechariah 3. Turn to Zechariah 7. The Jews have been scattered all over the earth. And God said that they would. The diaspora is what we call that. When Jews fled from Israel after the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. And it was prophesied about. This has been a justification for hunting them down wherever they are. Verse 13 of chapter 7. When I called, did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations where they were strangers. The land that was left so desolate behind them that no one could come or go. This is how they made the pleasant land desolate. When you don't read Scripture in light of Scripture and you read this, you see and feel justified in whatever happens to the Jewish people. I have quote after quote after quote from well-respected religious leaders in this century who have spoken about the Jewish people in a negative way and use scriptures just like this. They say God divorced Israel and the church has replaced her. They use scriptures just like this. Interesting. God did scatter them. But look at later in the same letter, 7th verse of the 8th chapter. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west. If you're sitting in Israel, to the east and to the west, cover all the countries of the world. Peoples from the countries of the east and the west, I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people, and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. He's going to bring them back. Have we seen anything like that? A million of them between 1990 and 2000. The nation of Israel has only been in modern-day existence since May 14, 1948, and its population has over 6 million Jews there right now. He's bringing them back, and what did he say he was going to do? Be faithful and righteous to them as their God. Look at the 20th verse of the same chapter. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat Him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. Has that happened? Have you seen that anywhere? No, I haven't either. The closest we come is one woman who happened to be an Israelite grabbing the hem of Jesus' garment. But there is a day coming when God's work will be so great in the nation of Israel that people of the other nations, ten other nations, and ten other languages 
will grab a Jew by the sleeve and say, please, let me go worship with you. God is not done with Israel. But what about those who don't believe? Turns me to the 12th chapter of the Look at verse 2. I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all of the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her. All of the nations are practicing for it now. Watch a United Nations meeting sometime. America and England are pretty well the only two allies Israel has anywhere in the world. And those are shaky depending on who's in office. But all nations will besiege Jerusalem. Every single nation on earth. Have you ever wondered what the great destinies of some of the nations of the world are? It all ends in one place. Working against God's people. I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. On that day I will strike every horse with panic and its riders with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over the house of Judah, but I will blind all the horses of the nations. Then the leaders of Judah will say in their hearts, the people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. On that day, I will make the leaders of Judah like a fire pot in a wood pile, like a flaming torch among the sheaves. They will consume right and left all the surrounding peoples. But Jerusalem will remain intact. What could get the attention of the Jewish people again? Personally, I believe it is when all of the nations again align against Israel. And as they align against Israel just in David's day, some righteous Gentiles need to stand with them and say, where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. This is what Ittiah said. And it earned him a grafted-in position in Israel forever. But we would be stupid to not read what's rest, the rest. Look at the 10th verse while they are in a difficult position, while all the nations have turned upon them. Verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. How did you get saved? That's right, grace. Grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for her firstborn son. Israel will be in a position where righteous Gentiles stand with them during their moment of need. And all of the nations are around them. And they begin to think upon and look upon the righteous king that they did not choose. And in mass, in mass, they will begin to say, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Look at the 13th chapter in the first verse. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. In a single day, this nation will turn to God. But it will be a process that involves people doing God's will. Since the American church is decadent at best. 
it's time that our preachers and teachers stood up and said what is true about what is going to happen. And it is not that our church flies away while Israel is left to suffer. It's not. It can't be. So it goes with Israel. It goes with us. I want to read you something. Two Scriptures and then we're done. That's not really a promise, but that's my goal. He says, listen to Paul's words again. Did they stumble so far as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. What could we possibly do that would make Israel envious now? You think they're envious of your Cadillac? They're envious of our name it and claim it gospel. They're envious of casting out imaginary demons. They're envious of uh, feathers that are appearing in churches. Gold dust on the ground? How about holy laughter? Barking like a dog. God may be in every one of those things. He's certainly not in an awful lot of it a lot of the time, though. What is it that we're doing that makes Israel envious? Being their persecutor? Standing silently while they're persecuted? Paul made much of his ministry so that we could make them envious. The day will come when Gentile believers will make Israel envious. The results will almost be inexpressible. Hear this scripture. It's Romans eleven twelve. For if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? Think about this for a moment. What an extraordinary word. Today there are men and women across the globe who are children of the living God, the spiritual seed of Abraham, joint heirs with Messiah, recipients of the eternal life, blood-washed, spirit-filled, consecrated saints as a result of Israel's transgression. If Israel had not transgressed, none of that would have come to us. How much greater will Israel's acceptance bring? At this very moment, a continuous stream of praise ascends to heaven in more than 2,500 languages. And angels shout for joy as sinners repent worldwide as the result of Israel's loss. You ever have a brother or sister that you are jealous of because mom and dad spent more time with them? Israel's stumbling has meant that 2,500 languages around the globe now can praise Jesus. The good news has been preached on every continent. And Buddhist priests, animist witch doctors, Muslim clerics, Hindu devotees, atheist professors, masses of humanity from all walks of life, both terrorists and those they terrorized, oppressors and those whom they oppressed, deceivers and those who had been deceived, a great multitude that nobody could count, as Revelation 7 says, have all been harvested into the kingdom as a result of Israel's disobedience. How much greater riches will their fullness bring? For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Friends, Paul says it is plain as day. Israel has experienced a hardening in part so that the full number of the Gentiles could, be, could come in. And so, all Israel will be saved. Why should you pray for Israel? Well, you should pray for Israel because the nation has served you well. The book in your hands you wouldn't have if it weren't for them. Why should you pray for Israel? Because without Israel's salvation, you don't get saved either. Do you understand that? God's 
whole salvation plan starts and ends with Israel. Starts and ends with Israel. You can put out of your mind every other thought. Jesus was killed by the Jews. Yes, so was the Passover lamb for the Jews. Same way the atonement goat was killed for the Jews, by the Jews. Paul made much of his ministry to people just like you and I in the hopes that we would live and shine such bright lives that Israel themselves would experience a stirring and awakening. And he said when it happens, it will be life from the dead. If you've had any thoughts of being sucked out of the sky by a Holy Ghost uh, alien attack or whatever it is, and Israel being left behind, you need to know that our salvation and Israel's salvation is one. And it occurs in a single day. Not coming to point A and to point B. A single day. And it's the day in which He makes them holy. So this is why Isaiah says, Give Him no rest until He makes Jerusalem the praise of the earth. This is why the Scripture is replete with present day references to Israel. This is why the law must go out from Zion and the nations of the world gather to it. I don't want our church to be ignorant. If you don't agree with me about eschatology, that's okay. I'll forgive you. You're wrong, but I'll forgive you. If you don't understand the importance of Israel, then we have a real problem. You say, what difference does it make in Houston, Texas or Sugarland, Texas? It makes all the difference in the world. So it goes with Israel. It goes with us. Saints, we need to be in prayer. We need to be in preparation. We need to look to see what our part can be in a revival that brings life to the whole world. And this week, you should read Romans 11 with a fresh eye. Paul goes ahead and concedes, as far as the gospel, they may look like enemies on your part, but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. If David could forgive Shimei, and Shimei had sinned against David, if he could wish that he would die rather than Absalom who rebelled against him, what do you think our heart ought to be towards the Jewish people? Then if you get enlightened a little bit in history and see that no race anywhere on the planet, no explanation of any kind could explain the satanic vitriol that the world has expressed towards that nation, all of a sudden your eyes might be open. Maybe God wants to save them and the devil wants to prove God a liar. Psalm 82 speaks about how we're supposed to act and how Israel is supposed to act. I'm encouraging us to do it. Put on your prayer list in our culture of prayer that we're talking about in church. Put on your prayer list Israel. And when you see somebody with locks and a funny looking hat and a strange diet, Maybe rather than thinking of them as a modern-day Pharisee, which is maybe what you've been taught to see, maybe you should see somebody that you should say, Bless you, O Israel. Y'all stand to your feet. We'll pray. Every eye will see Him, but the eyes in Jerusalem cannot see Him until they welcome Him. Better pray for hearts to change. Better pray for a fountain to be opened. Better pray for the same mercy that you've received for them to receive. And then the race that gave us this book, Jesus' own countrymen can dance and sing in the Spirit with Him. And it will be like life 
from the dead. I do want to give you this encouragement. There are more Messianic believers in Jerusalem today than there has been in the history since the first century. More today. The world is starting to catch on. But as righteousness grows, so will wickedness. Better watch our doctrine, saints. Join hands around you. Ten times in the book of Acts, a word is used that means unity. It's homo thumaden, mouthful. Hebrew for it is yachad. It literally means that we have one heart and one soul. Most of the world would not care at all. Most of the church world would not care at all about the things that you've heard tonight. Not only would they be yawning, they would walk out the door and immediately forget about it. And yet God has got to raise up a group of people that with one heart, one mind, one accord, care about His plan for the nations. I'm praying that He'll do that in here. I don't know ten Jews in my life, in my whole lifetime. I work with about five, so I'm halfway there. But they occupy a special place in God's plan. And the Gentiles have run with this thing for a couple thousand years and truthfully muddied the waters badly. Maybe it's time that we not so much worry about how blessed we are, how much richer and fatter we can get, and we start looking at God's plan for the nations. A prophecy came forth tonight from somebody that doesn't usually prophesy. It said, basically, the time is short. Get to work. How appropriate. Let's pray. Mighty, mighty God.